doesn't seem quite fair, really. It's, it's not fair in that the life and witness of John the Baptist goes from proclaiming in the River Jordan straight to his prison cell. But I suppose that it is to be expected in a gospel that is written about Jesus the Christ because it's really uh, his story. And, uh, and I suppose we get this uh, because this was a first century concern of early Christian gospelers that we know without a doubt that Jesus of Nazareth and not John the Baptizer was the most important Jewish prophet around Jerusalem at that time. And just setting that, that need that the gospelers felt to write about just setting that aside for the moment, I think what we have in this 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel is a fascinating literary device. Because for all intents and purposes, once John baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan, John disappears from our narrative entirely. Completely gone. Because the story is about Jesus now. That is, until eight chapters later, from the third to the eleventh chapter, where today we learn that John is imprisoned by Herod the vassal king. And he's waiting, and John is debating his fate. Now, what's critical to remember is that uh, biblical scholars teach us that prisons in the first century were way stations, not endpoints. In the first century, when you entered a prison, it, one of three things followed. You were exonerated, you were exiled, or you were executed. And given what John has said about Herod and Herodias, I think that he had to know that execution was the most likely outcome of the three. And so I imagine him sitting in his cell, day after day after day, working one question over and over and over. Because John had a lot of time on his hands, too much time. The kind of time that causes you to review your life, to question yourself, and to doubt. What have I done? What have I not done? What if I had? Was it all worth it? The reports that John was getting from his students probably did not ease his concerns. It seems that no wrath has come, that the unquenchable fire has yet to be kindled. Could it be that I was wrong? And so John sends his students back to ask Jesus and they bear one question. 
the question that I imagine John has been agonizing over. Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? It's an essential question, isn't it? Uh, a question that remains to this day for us. If Jesus would only answer it. <laughs> now, I, uh, I realize that Jesus seems to have little to no interest in being a politician, but his ability to dodge and weave is second to none. He does this all the time, and this time, when asked a direct question, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? He answers simply by describing what he's been doing. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. What he's doing is, uh, is basically referencing passage after passage after passage of the prophet Isaiah. Much like we heard earlier in the service. And the prophet is prophesying to the restoration of Zion. So is Jesus the one? He doesn't even need to say it. Just look and listen, and that will tell you everything that you need to know. But the teaching is not over, even after John's students leave the scene. And this part is really curious to me, that this crowd gathers to see this exchange. Why are they even there? Were they just kind of hanging around, uh, hoping to see a, a clash between these competing groups? Or did they too have uncertainties, doubts, questions? Were they hoping to hear Jesus disclose something about his being the chosen one that would be the, the tipping point? so that there would be no doubt about him at all anymore. It seems like Jesus sensing, senses something. He does this a lot in crowds. He, he reads the situation. And so now he turns his attention and his questions to the crowd. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind, a man dressed in soft clothing. What were you looking for? Now here's where a couple of millennia between this story and our day really do make a difference. Archaeologists tell us that in the first century in Palestine, King Herod had a coin minted with his profile on one side and a bunch of reeds on the other. So some scholars believe that what Jesus is doing 
is not only reminding the crowd of John's credentials, but also all the while mocking John's captor. Because the ones with real power, the power to point the way to God, to make God's realm known, they rarely mint their own coins or are found in palaces wearing luxurious clothing. No, Jesus says, that's not what drew you into the wilderness. That's not what compelled you to repent. That's not what pulled you into the Jordan. You joined the tax collectors and the imperial soldiers because you too were people yearning to be set free. That is where God's realm is seen. It took me a while to get out to the here, there camp. Not in minutes. Ironically, it's just around the corner from the nonprofit housing partner, Saha, that we are working with to build housing next door for people just like those who live in the tents. I go by there often. No, it took me a while to get to the here, there camp because stuff. Because sermons and because job searches and because design meetings and because, frankly, I didn't have to. But one of our parishioners, Tess Taylor, was persistent. You need to meet these folks, she said. I've been spending time there for a while, and I really think you need to visit. So finally I did. I made space in my week, and I drove down uh, Shattuck to Adeline and parked near where the, the BART tracks emerge from underground past the Aspie Station. And I walked down the sidewalk to the double lines of tents hugging the curb. And was stunned. I was stunned by one of the most loving, intentional, nurturing communities that I have ever come across. The camp was spotless. As one of the rules is that if you're going to live in the here, there camp, you have to clean up around your tent and you have to do daily chores for the rest of the community. And it is organized. Their solar setup is expertly wired, which feeds into their batteries, which powers their refrigeration. Their main tent is very carefully arranged with food and supplies of all kinds that are shared by the camp and then given to those in need around them. But what was so amazing and heartrending at the same time was to see how righteously the people of this camp were caring with and for each other. They're living out in the midst of the elements. As wet and cold as it gets around here, they're doing this without running water, right next to the, the roar of the BART trains. I mean, from here to there, when the BART train comes by, everybody pauses the conversation because you can't hear what the other person is saying. 
until the train is passed and you pick it up again. There's streams of traffic day and night. And in the midst of all that, people are being healed. Justice and mercy can be seen. Not because of anybody with uh, a soft robe or because of the coin of the kingdom, but because of unbelievable, heart-filled courage and relentless compassion of the couple dozen women, children, and men together with and for each other. I think that part of the reason why we often cannot see or do not recognize what the inbreaking of God looks like is that we aren't looking in the right places. What Isaiah prophesied and what Jesus embodied is that you'll be able to see the restorative realm of God in the places where people are being set free. But first you need to be willing to look and see where people are being bound. And once there, be willing to not look away. For there will be uncertainty. It's going to be messy. And it won't all be made right. And it will break your heart. And that's a risk. A risk we face in this way of Jesus. The risk is that we look and we truly see. And we see ourselves now as one of them. And we come close. So close that we can't look away anymore. <laughs>